1: This is the Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello,
2: I'm Jason Kelly.
1: And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr.
2: And we're here a few Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays exploring the big money issues in the world of sports, talking to some of the biggest players in the industry. Today, I am so excited. We are talking with author and journalist Matt Hart about his new book. It's called When at All Costs, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. I Full disclosure, I've said this to everybody on this pod already, I'm obsessed with this book. I devoured it, and I'm so excited, Matt, that you're here with us. First of all, congratulations on the book. I mean, this was a, an undertaking. This is not like, oh, let me tell you some things about my wanderings through the world. This is a heavy-duty, investigative, journalistic enterprise. How do you even go about attacking something like this?
3: Well, thanks for having me, guys, first of all, and I appreciate your interest. So, you know, I've been writing about sports science and endurance sports for years and had been, you know, sort of poking around on this story as it started to unfold. Um, And I I ended up getting my hands on a stolen document from the United States Anti-Doping Agency. It was thought that the it is still thought that the Fancy Bear Russian hackers had stolen this document, which basically laid out um, the United States, the USADA's. Entire case against Nike and Alberto Salazar and their team doctor, Dr. Jeffrey Brown in Houston. And um, that's really where it began for me. You know, I, it was a confidential source. I, I got the document and started reporting on it immediately for the New York Times. And then the book grew out of that. There was such interest in, in what had actually gone on behind the scenes um, that I started reporting it from that point on. And that was 2017. So it's, it's almost taken up four years of my life at this point.
2: Matt, I want to go back, if we can, and just set the table a little bit around the Nike Oregon project, because it sort of refers back in many ways, not just to the company's headquarters, but its lineage. And, you know, all the way back to the founding of the company by Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman. Uh, And also, it it had a noble goal, which was to sort of bring American runners back to the top of the field in international competition. Mm -hmm. So just take a beat for us and, and explain what that was and why Salazar was, at least on the face of it, the right person to to be the face of it and the head of it. Yeah.
3: So, Alberto had been one of America's best marathon runners and, and best athletes. In the early 1980s, he had dominated the New York City Marathon. He won three times. In 82, he won the Boston Marathon. And as he was leaving school and becoming a professional athlete, he was sponsored by Nike. And back then, um, running athletes weren't making huge salaries. And so, the it salaries and Nike's agreement with Salazar back then is widely seen as sort of the first considerable salary. I think it was a quarter million dollars, $250,000. And so what ended up happening was Alberto had sort of overtrained himself. You know, he had to stay at the top um, in endurance sports takes a lot of training, you know, miles, hundreds of miles a week. Um, and so he had kind of overdone it. He had overcooked himself. His endocrine system was sort of destroyed. His hormones were a wreck. You know, he became depressed and considered suicide. Part of the contract negotiation with Nike early on, and one of the reasons he said he took Nike over, say, Adidas, was that they said to him in the contract, apparently, they said, you know, there's an opportunity to come work for us after your professional athletic career is over. And so after he sort of burned out of the sport, he took them up on that opportunity, and he worked in the marketing department at Nike. And so then fast forward to 2001, he's watching the Boston Marathon in 2001 with Tom Clark, a vice president at Nike. And, and Tom Clark, you know, is, is a runner. You know, he finished, I think, 35 more than 35 marathons. And Salazar and him were sitting there discussing how poorly American athletes are running in the 2001 Boston Marathon. And so they hatched a plan that day to start a team um, using Nike's money and technology and gadgets that Alberto could procure. And they would use, you know, uh, the funds from – the Nike Corporation, and trained the Nike athletes right on the Nike campus. Um, and so that started in 2001. It wasn't yet called the Nike Oregon Project, and they tried to recruit the best athletes they could, and Alberto coached them. And for about 10 years, it was a, fail, a complete failure. Uh, you know, they were, they, were, they were very good nationally, but they weren't winning gold medals. They weren't reaching, you know, the top of the podium. And so that's when he started to recruit a little bit earlier and earlier. That's when he found Galen Rupp. And... That's when Adam Goucher and the Gouch and Kara Goucher came into the scene. Adam had just you know dominated the NCAA at the University of Colorado. He had signed initially with Fila, and then six years later we're in two thousand and four. And Nike signed Adam after his contract with Fila to be sort of the, the main character, the face of the team and, and hopefully bring American running back to prominence. You know, on the side they signed Kara sorta of as an afterthought and interestingly. You know, right. His career and his his career went in, on a downward trajectory. Well, you know she took off, and so that's how that relationship began. And, and it was really just a process. You know, Adam he had created himself, and so he actually made the connection with uh, the, the endocrinologist in Houston. His coach at CU had said, "I heard this guy's good," and he connected him to Dr. Jeffrey Brown, the doctor who you know has been banned from sport now with Alberto, and that's in two thousand four. And what happens is Alberto starts send all the athletes to Dr. Brown. And that basically happened, uh, you know, right up until these guys were banned. But they had this sort of unholy relationship where even if the athletes, for instance, wouldn't test out of the normal range for thyroid, for TSH, Dr. Brown sort of saw himself as a groundbreaking doctor. So he would prescribe the athletes uh, synthetic thyroid hormone anyway. And this apparently helped them lose weight, get to weight. You know, weight's very important in endurance sport. It would help them get down to weight. It would give them more energy. And Alberto sort of had this pet theory that it also helped with their testosterone levels. And so now he had a doctor on board that could help him prescribe things that were sort of in the gray area. And like I said, at times they would cross the line. And so, you know, the team from there really focused on Galen Rupp. As Adam sort of his career started to decline, Alberto found 15-year-old Galen Rupp locally and started to coach the athlete. You know, he went to the University of Oregon um, but was coached by Alberto throughout that period and you know he's he's probably still America's best marathon runner
1: for lack of a better term uh, it took some brass ones to write this because you're going up against the swoosh i mean you're you're talking about mm-hmm. a company that uh, put their money behind tiger woods michael jordan uh, lance armstrong they went they all were at one point the face of nike and all of a sudden this story comes along can you bring us more about why this story needed to be told?
3: Yeah, you know, the deeper I went and the more I reported, uh, it just really seemed like a story for our times. You know, it's a it's a love story. Uh, there's a story of deep betrayal here and corporate malfeasance, and I just, as I dug, it, it became apparent that you know, the team was sort of an outgrowth of what was happening in upper level management at Nike, and so. Yeah, I mean, it just deserved a book-length treatment and book-length narrative. Uh, there's so much here. The first time I interviewed Adam Goucher, Adam and his wife, Kara, were some of the main whistleblowers to USADA. You know, that's basically what he told me, that this. there's too much detail here, Matt. This is a book. This has been going on for years, and there's relationships to unpack. And the deeper I got, uh, the, the more I actually couldn't believe what I was finding in the reporting. So, uh, yeah, I just thought it deserved a, a book-length narrative, and the story was actually crashing around me as I was reporting it. You know, I'd get a little tidbit here from a source, and I was excited to get it into the book, and then it would be reported in Sports Illustrated or the New York Times. But I just kept plugging along, and Alberto, you know, was banned September 30 of 2019 from sport for four years, and so that gave us sort of a, a natural conclusion to the story.
2: Matt, I'm sure there are all kinds of hurdles, roadblocks, and impediments uh, to, to writing this story and into getting to the truth. And the biggest one was?
3: Um I mean, there's a number of angles here I could go. I mean, one of the questions I was trying to answer was what kind of corporate context could give rise to a team like this, could allow Alberto to be, you know, sexually explicit in and inappropriate at times, um, as well as, you know, wading into these gray areas with prescription drugs that ended up getting him banned. So he obviously, you know, eventually crossed the line. He was dabbling in testosterone on the Nike campus. And so I think to answer the question, what kind of corporate context gave rise to a team like this and allowed it to fester, I guess.
2: And so let's talk about that, Matt, because that was something that is a thread that pulls through all of this. And, you know, I read Shoe Dog when it came out, and it's pretty unvarnished and gives you some sense, obviously, from Phil Knight's perspective, of building the culture. But clearly, Mm -hmm. this was... Enabled to some extent, either implicitly or explicitly, and I think you you touched on something that's really important, which is the both the the harassment element, but also the gender inequality, and that is I think best represented mm-hmm. in your book by the saga of Kara Goucher herself and. The company refusing to pay her during that, it ends up being, I guess, a six-month suspension, but it starts out as 17 months, and then it goes to 12, and then it goes to six. But it's this whole question of what appears to be, at least by my read, just blatant unfairness and not only not living up to what they promised, given what she did in terms of living up to her end of the bargain, but also a real inequity when it comes to female athletes and male athletes at Nike.
3: Yeah, I mean, it does seem, even today, I think yesterday on Instagram, they had some, you know, really moving advertisements, Nike did, uh, and posts about empowering female athletes. And it does seem hypocritical um, when you look at how the company does its business, where, you know, I think think, uh, Mark Parker, the year he denied Kara that salary for not racing because she was pregnant, I think he made $14 million that year. Right. And, And they... They kept, uh, I think it was $120,000 from her or one hundred and sixty of her salary. They basically stopped paying her. And this was a tactic they'd used with assistant coaches who were, you know, maybe starting to ask too many questions of Alberto. Um, and it was described to me just, uh, initially as just a way to keep an athlete or a coach on his toes and maybe keep them a little, them a little bit fearful for their job. But yeah, there's a um, a discongruency here with what Nike advertises as as being, you know, promoting women in sport versus what their contracts say. And I think they have made a, a, um, changes to their contracts recently, and they announced that, and that was a great PR splash. But if you talk to athletes like Kara, she'll say, you know, that's that's just talk. That that doesn't actually fix the problem. Um, that that needs to be addressed. Where basically they. If an athlete doesn't race for 120 days, as is written in the contract, and, of course, that varies here and there, they, they stop paying them entirely. And with Kara, they had promised to pay her. She was, right. so, um, she was such a high-profile athlete. They basically said, as long as you're doing your thing. And she was on the cover of magazines, and she was you know doing interviews as a mom and what, what's, it, what's it like to run and tr- continue to train as a mom. So there was this marketing effort behind her that Nike was fully supporting um but yet they had stopped paying her in the middle of it and the gouchers were just shocked when they heard from their financial advisor that hey my nike money's not coming in anymore and then of course she couldn't get any uh answers and eventually they just lost the money Or they had to get lawyers to to fight nike and that was uh, you know one of their breaking points with the company because as soon as you involve some lawyers um you know they were warned by alberto this will be the last the last Um, bit of money you get from Nike, you'll never work for the company again if you do this. And that speaks to the tribalness of the company as well.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country.
1: Can we talk about some of the substances that you're saying sure. that they used and the side effects involved in it?
3: Yeah. Well, you know, there's some context here. It seems like the Lance Armstrong era, you know, there was just uh, rampant treating, uh, cheating rather, and, you know, injecting of EPO before you jump on your bike. And it seems like that era really pushed the sport, the sporting world, endurance sports in general, towards um, a more gray area tactics. So rather than EPO, uh, and testosterone, I mean, that's not entirely true. Alberto was banned from sport for trafficking testosterone, so that was still around. But it seems as though cycling teams and Alberto, at the same time, were starting to experiment with what prescription drugs can help us achieve the same sort of level of performance, um, whether it's diuretics or changing in athletes, um, birth control pills so that they menstruate less often, hold on to more blood and red blood cells, which helps them perform. So Alberto, not being a doctor, was in, deeply involved in all of these things with all of the athletes. And at times, you know, not being a doctor and not being able to connect the dots, he would have the athletes take substances that, yeah, were, were harmful to their health. Mo Farah, the U.K. athlete, is one specifically has a condition where his body creates a, a, a bit too much calcium. And calcium for runners is important to keep them from getting stress fractures. The pounding of running... Um, you know, stress fractures are a scourge in the sport, really, uh, because you're just out on the road hitting hitting the ground so hard all the time. So, a lot of these drugs. It was more of an experiment. It was a, it was a let's throw everything at the wall and see what works. And you know, he found that thyroid stimulating hormones worked. So, he was testing testosterone on the Nike campus. That's probably the most egregious, and that's that's one of the things he ended up serving the band for. Alberto had a bit of a obsession with testosterone throughout his own career. He started using it. With, you know, unbeknownst to the sporting world in 1991. And so he knew the powers of this drug and how performance-enhancing it would be. Um, but being Nike, trying to get back to your question here, they, they would find out about substances that weren't readily available or research as soon as it came out or even before it was to be published. And so they found out about this amino acid L-carnitine and um, some, some research that had been done in the U.K. And Alberto instantly mobilized the team and the assistant coach and the doctor to test the substance. Now, the substance itself is not illegal, but the L carnitine, it, it's hard, to, it doesn't, um, it's not absorbed well by the muscles, and there's some complications. You can't just drink it like a cup of coffee in the morning and then have it improve your performance later. And so they devised a scheme where they would inject it or infuse it into the athletes, and to get to the levels of L carnitine they needed, they were doing this at illegal levels. So the the World Anti Doping Agency has limits on how much you can inject yourself or a doctor can inject you or infuse you in a six-hour period. And that's you know, just the barrier that they put there. And it's 50 milliliters. And so this is one of the things he was banned from sport for. He ended up testing 1,000 milliliters on the assistant coach who was still racing and still active in the racing scene. And so you know, he had kind of waded into this um, area in a number of different ways with prescription drugs and, and amino acid treatments that weren't yet readily uh, known to the general public. And so he just started to cross the line here and there. And uh, the rumor rumor mill eventually caught up with him and USADA started investigating him.
2: Hey, Matt, uh, there's no bigger stage for for any athlete, particularly runners, than uh, the Olympics. And have you Mm -hmm. been able to calculate what an Olympic medal would be worth to the Nike brand?
3: No, I I haven't been able to do that. It's interesting. You know, I point out in the book you're, you're given an award. You're given a, a sum of money for winning, and that varies per country. Um, but to Nike and the corporation, it's, I mean, I, I think it's impossible to it out. Maybe I could work with an economist uh, to figure this one out. But, um, you know, running is, a found, is the foundational sport for Nike. So people often ask me this question because they seem to put a lot of money into the sport. And to their credit, they put a lot of money into track and field. That it doesn't seem like they get back on return of, on return of investment. It's interesting. You know, they make thirty-five billion dollars a year um, in revenue, and four point five of that ish. You know, that's two thousand eleven number or two thousand nine numbers. They make about four and a half billion dollars uh, in the category of running, and that's their largest category, surprisingly. Well, when you add Jordan and the basketball category together, that category becomes slightly higher, slightly more important. But the way they break it out, running still looks like um, the biggest money maker for Nike, and it's just really important for them to be—you uh, know—they're the prominent brand in the sport. They make the most money from the sport, and so it's part and parcel. You know, the domination of the sport is very, very important. And I heard this time and again, talking about meetings at Nike or executives complaining that no Nike uh, athletes were winning gold, that became pretty obvious from from interviews with employees.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country.
2: Yeah, it's interesting. You've got a great anecdote in the book about uh, Phil Knight watching Frank Shorter, you know, what's meant to be this culminating moment, keep me honest on this anecdote, you know, running, I believe, the 76 Olympics, and basically his Nike shoes like kind of give out on him right before, and he's got to run in his uh, Tigers. Do I have that right?
3: Yeah, yeah, you have that right. I thought that was pretty interesting. That was uh, the 76 uh, Olympics in Montreal, and, right. and Frank Shorter had won the 72 Olympics, so he was... He was the man to beat on the day. And uh, with the death of Steve Prefontaine, Frank told me, you know, I I made an agreement with Nike. And so it should be stated that this is in the early days before professional running. So this is still, these are clandestine deals. Right. Where Frank agreed to get paid $15,000 a year by Nike. Uh, You know, and this is a secret deal that nobody knows about because he's an amateur. And you have to compete in the In, uh, the Olympics, you're supposed to remain an amateur and so nike not just nike of course adidas and puma they were making under the table deals with athletes to get them to hopefully you know run around the track uh, do it you know, with their uh, shoes held high after winning gold medal and so yeah frank um ended up just warming up in the nike shoe and it sort of de- it had delaminated on him and he wasn't wearing socks so his foot sort of showing through uh between the the uh outsole and the upper um, and he had he had a pair of shoes that in his room that he had a friend run and get him and he just barely got him on in time and you can still see this in the footage that's on youtube he's sort of tying his shoes on the side of the track moments before the marathon started and ended up running in uh, onatsuka tigers the next year that company was renamed asics so this is the origins of asics the shoe company and phil knight in his biography talks about how he was watching these olympics and he really they had all their hopes pinned on frank shorter and then he they realized he's wearing their enemies the enemy's shoes um, and he sort of starts screaming at the television in, yeah. in his in his anecdote. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that just shows how again how important uh, winning races and, and uh the sport of running is to Nike. It really is their foundational sport.
2: And for the kids out there listening, I mean, there was no one in many ways bigger than Frank Shorter. in and uh, you know, as an American athlete, in in some ways, you know, he mm-hmm. was he was world famous. I, I do have to ask you. Speaking of of world famous athletes there is a through line, a strong through line, uh, especially toward the end of the book, when you talk about Lance Armstrong and both the relationship Mm -hmm. with Nike, but also how everything with Alberto Salazar and the Oregon Project sort of comes undone because of the connectivity between the Armstrong investigation and ultimately the investigation. They are Tell us about that connection, because it—I feel like it's—it's it's almost both technical and spiritual in some ways, because there are there are a lot of um, overlapping themes.
3: Yeah, well, when Lance, you know, Lance was the most famous athlete on earth for many years, and uh, a, a Nike stalwart, and that's how the two men became connected. And when Lance started to run marathons after his, um, I think his first retirement, Salazar. And him became close, and they started talking training and training techniques and, I'm sure, supplements and other techniques. Um, but the teammates on the Nike Organ Project sort of detailed the, through the years where, as it became apparent that Lance Armstrong was cheating and was on drugs, they were, you know, Lance would be on TV and they'd hear comments from Salazar. So it was obvious to them that he knew Lance uh, was using performance-enhancing drugs and was doping to win the races. And the athletes, you know, it started just to shift their perspective on on Alberto in general because he wasn't damning. When Tyler Hamilton, a teammate of Armstrong's, came out with a book, you know, uh, it's described to me how Alberto was angry at Tyler and saying he just wanted to make money rather than uh, admitting that Lance Armstrong was the one that was probably wrong in this situation. You know, it just struck the athletes as they couldn't believe it. You know, Salazar just deeply admired Armstrong and how tough he was. Um, as did, you know, the Nike campus, if that really becomes clear. And so the two men, you know, began working together on the side, helping uh, Alberto would help Armstrong with his run training. Um, and, you know, as it came out in the USADA document, as soon as Alberto started testing Alcarnitine, he had some early evidence that it was a real game changer, that it was a real performance-enhancing drug. And so he had uh, emailed Lance, it's, it's amazing, and it's all legal, and I'm not going to tell anyone about it except you and Galen Rupp. Right. And so, you know, this is also indicative of how he treated the team. Some athletes had full information about the substances, some didn't. Uh, many of them began to get worried with um, Alberto's ability to sort of juggle all these substances they're on. You know, Dathan Ritzenheim comes to mind there where, you know, he asked, you know, he started to feel off. He was on thyroid hormone and a number of other things, and you know, he just started to get scared. And so I, I think this is where things start to unravel for the athletes, you know, their coach is the deeply admiring Lance Armstrong when everyone else seems to be uh, in full realization that he's cheated to win uh, his entire career. And so that just sort of sets a lot of them off early on. And then, you know, just how he ends up, I, you know, I make the analogy in the book that Armstrong had been discarding people in his orbit yeah. that sort of went against them or argued against them. And I, I mean, I think in my analysis of the story in the Oregon project, that is exactly what happened to Alberto. He had, just left such a long trail of, you know, angry and disaffected athletes. Anyone who challenged him was fired, and, and he'd tell the rest of the team he was crazy or he was drunk. And, you know, you, if, if everything was on the up and up, he probably could have gotten away with that for the rest of his life. If he had stepped over the line and into, you know, cheating and using performance-oriented methods and, and substances, you know, that all, just came back, that all just came back to bite him, and I think that's pretty analogous to the Armstrong story.
1: I have to ask what the responsibility for Nike and Salazar getting the four year suspension is that enough? Mm-hmm. And has Nike paid the price? I mean, it's according from this book, this is a like a Ralph Nader kind of unsafe in any speed book, which you know brought out the Corvair. and I'm just wondering, has Nike really paid the price for this? You
3: know, there's a through line in the book too about the stock pricing, you know, the only I really think the only lever the community has or Wall Street has is to ding them in some way. And it seems like no one's paying attention because the stock recently hit an all-time high. I think it's at $130 a share today. And, you know, even through, you know, 91, uh, Harper's Magazine publishes the Sweatshop controversy. And if you look at the stock over time, of course, it, it does its thing where it dips here and there. But it is it is only going up and it has continued to go up. Now, Nike, you know, had stood behind Lance Armstrong until literally the last moment, and it appears as though they're doing that with Alberto Salazar. They're they're still funding him. They funded uh, the lawyers and and the legal case against USADA. They did it for the athletes and Dr. Jeffrey Brown as well. Uh, Mark Parker, you know, before he stepped aside in January, basically said, "We don't think this is a fair penalty for Alberto," and and I I'm unsure of how to unpack that. It seems like. They're just deeply loyal to athletes who've been deeply loyal to them, and they fail to see the entire story. You know, if you've been following along, um, you wouldn't have sent, you know, Nike, being the brand that it is, the, the, the best and brightest young American athletes, of course, want to run for the sponsor. And so we have an athlete like Jordan Hesse or Mary Kane, these young girls that are just phenomenal early on. And had Nike been paying attention and honestly looking at what was happening around Alberto, they would not have funneled these athletes to them. You know, and so Mary Kane, of course, now has come out and say she believes, believes the team and the, and the Nike adorned men basically abused her while she was on the team. And, and I, that has to be laid on Nike corporate. You know, they took these athletes who were coming into their orbit looking for sponsorship and funneled them to an embattled coach. I mean, there's no other way to say it. Had they even read everything that had hit the news? I don't know. It's hard to say how they can constantly do that. Um, you know, and so I think they've got a lot. To answer for. Um, and, and I, you know, I try, to, I try to figure out how that's possible. And I heard from more than one person that Phil Knight and Alberto are just very close. Alberto's like a son to him. yeah. And, and that was a similar situation to Phil Knight and Lance Armstrong. Um, now, you know, Phil doesn't mention Lance Armstrong in his biography at all. But I know the two men still talk and they're still very close. And so there's an admiration there for a win at all costs athlete. Phil doesn't seem to care you know, that, that Lance had been cheating throughout his entire career. Um, it's just a, 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 a culture of, idol, of idolatry, I guess. I mean, you know, they just see these athletes as, you know, the best thing on earth, and, and they treat them uh, in that way. And the more they win, uh, the tighter the bond with the brand becomes, and the more money they end up paying the athletes. So,
2: so Matt, what's the takeaway from this book for a, for a young up-and-coming runner? Um, is the Nike brand radioactive right now to these young people?
3: It's hard to say. Um, I mean, one would think it should be. Or at least, you know, some hard discussion should have to happen. Uh, Nike's famous for doing sort of internal investigations. And I should say, during the Alberto Salazar scandal, they were do- they were doing an internal investigation. But again, it doesn't seem like there's any object objectivity there. And so the internal investigation said he's doing he's done nothing wrong. And so that should scare the athletes and famous athletes like Shalane Flanagan, who runs for them, came out and said at one point, she couldn't believe that these young, these young, these young um, promising female runners were signing up with Alberto. And she even said at the time, like you have to look at who you're surrounding yourself with, who's in your orbit, who your coach is. And I think that's the lesson, you know, it's heartbreaking to, to, as I started to unpack the, the, Goucher, the Kara Goucher story, you know, she'd come to love Alberto uh, like a father and, you know, Galen Rupp was like a brother to her and there has to be this trust between coach and athlete and she, and she had it and they developed it. You know, you have to believe what your coach is telling, asking you to do or telling you to do um, is exactly what you should be doing. So you have to completely buy in and then there's these close bonds. Um, so for the young athlete, you know, reading this story, hopefully just allows them to see it for what it is. I mean, unfortunately, and I hate to be the wet blanket here, but the athletes are commodities to Nike. You know, they're traded from sponsor to sponsor, they're paid when they're doing well, and they're um, cut or not paid when they're not doing well. And that's the unfortunate truth of professional sports. And so a young athlete or or someone who's coaching a young athlete needs to fully realize this is not necessarily all it's uh, cut out to be or all it might seem maybe on social media just to be weary of it and go into the relationship with your eyes fully wide open and, um, you know, that, and hopefully change the contract. If it's, you know, uh, obviously advantageous to Nike rather than you.
2: Yeah, no, it's a great point, And I think it's something that comes through very clearly in the book, this notion that this is one of the most intimate and familial relationships, familial like relationships that people enter into and, you know, literally giving over their bodies in many ways. Um, to a company and to to a coach. And and ultimately, uh, at the end of the day, uh, it is a business. And uh, those things are Mm -hmm. not always congruous, as you say. Matt Hart, congratulations on the book. It really is a terrific read. It's called Win at All Costs, Inside Nike Running and Its Culture of Deception. Check it out. You will learn a lot. And it's just, I can't recommend it enough. So, Thank you so much for joining us, Matt.
3: Oh, thanks Thank for you. having me. I appreciate
2: it. And you can catch our podcast right here every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And
1: I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at Lynchy WCVB. And I'm Michael Barr at Big Bar Sports on Twitter. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio around the world.